Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. So, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Charles Larkin, and I am the Director of Research at the University of Bath's Institute for Policy Research. Today, we'll be discussing the war in Ukraine. Since 1945, a rules-based international order has been the norm. Despite many proxy wars and small to medium-sized conflicts, efforts were made to ensure the minimization of direct confrontation between the USSR and the West. The collapse of the Soviet Union was to bring about the infamous end of history and with it a triumph of the liberal order. 20 days ago, that all came to an end. Europe has radically rethought its security situation in what is being called the third Hamiltonian moment of a decade for the European Union. The relevance of NATO and its alliance has been confirmed and the benign neglect of nuclear disarmament now looks like negligence. In August 1914, Sir Edward Grey said, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Are we witnessing such a return to that darkness? To understand our current situation, we have a series of guests with us today whose experience and expertise will hopefully guide us. Our first speaker will be Sir Roderick Braithwaite, a former British diplomat who has served as ambassador to Moscow during the critical years of perestroika. His other postings include Jakarta, Warsaw, Rome, Brussels with the EU delegation, and Washington, DC. He was also on the Sherpa team of the G7 summits in the 1980s and served as foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister John Major and chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee from 1992 to 93. Our second speaker is our own uh, Dr. Patrick Rury, who's a senior lecturer in security at the Department of Politics, Languages and International Studies at this university, and a UKRI Future Leaders Fellow. He is a former NATO analyst and British infantry officer. Our final speaker today is Dr. Anne Marin, uh, who is a researcher at the Center for French Culture at the University of Warsaw, where she pilots a project analyzing the impact of Russian quote-unquote, sharp power on European values and institutions. She's an associate fellow with the Russian and Eurasian program at Chatham House, and she has previously worked on Belarus as an expert with European think tanks such as the Finnish Institute for International Affairs, the Center for Europe, Eastern European Studies, and the EU Institute for Security Studies. She's taken part in several organizations for security cooperation in Europe, election observation missions, throughout the ex-USSR, and is a voluntary human rights defender as well. She's published extensively on Belarusian domestic and foreign policies and Eurasian integration and EU-Russian relations. This event is going to be recorded and subsequently broadcast through YouTube. For those that you have questions, please submit them through the Q&A function, and we will attempt to uh, get to them during the duration of our conversation which is until a quarter past two today. For those of you on Twitter, please tag at Uni of Bath IPR um, as the handle for this event. We open with Sir Roderick, over to you. Thank you, I'm just unmuting. Well, um, the first time I met Putin, was in October 1991 when he was a deputy mayor of what was still just Leningrad and nobody had the remotest idea who he was. And I found myself talking to him for half an hour at the airport while we waited for somebody. 
he spent the whole time ranting about what a dreadful lot the Estonians were. And I thought, this man is the deputy mayor of Russia's second city, and all he can do is rant about the Estonians. And I thought, uh, what a boring little man he was, and I dismissed him from my mind. I thought I won't have to bother with him again. Uh, well, that turned out, of course, to be a bit of a mistake. Uh, the second thing I want to say is that I don't think that understanding Putin is very diff difficult, but I do want to make a point. When I was small and behaved badly, my mother would ask for an explanation. I'd give her one and she'd say, that's no excuse. And I'd say, well, it meant to be an excuse. It was, a, it was an explanation of why I behaved like I did. I think you can explain what Mr. Putin thinks he's doing without uh, sympathizing with it or excusing it in any way. And I think that's a point that also gets lost sight of sometimes. Um, I'm going to go through the events basically from 1991 when I met him. I never had that chance to talk to him again, although I've met him since. Um, and I think one of the things which got left out rather um, in the euphoria that surrounded the collapse of the Soviet Union, also for quite a lot of Russians who were glad to see it go, and glad to see it in communism, um, was the, from our point of view, it was all a plus. For many Russians, it was a really dreadful time, started in 1991. Literally, uh, in some places, famine. Um, soldiers, in, uh, sailors in the Far Eastern fleet died of starvation. Um, then, of course, they had been the second superpower and suddenly they're set, left with no position. They become the object of other people's policy. Um, and um, they've lost everything that made them think Russia was great, not only the Soviet Union, but before that as well. So we, we thought at that time, we speculated amongst ourselves about Weimar. Here is a gate country who thinks it hasn't been defeated in a war, makes an experiment with democracy, runs into dreadful uh, economic problems, turns to a man who says he can save them and, he, and a man who says he will start by rescuing all the people who've been cut off from their country by uh, new frontiers drawn by the victors. That led us to 1939. And we speculated that the same thing could happen in Russia. Um, a point which I'd like to make at this stage, the Western powers diplomacy in the 1930s was lamentable in a number of ways, but they didn't, they are not responsible for the first and second world war. The man who started the second world war was Hitler. And I think we need to keep that in mind when we talk about who's responsible for what today. Um, that's the, that's the second one. A, a, a third point is, however, in our, in our um, euphoria at what George Bush specifically said in January 92 was our victory in the Cold War, thanks to our superior values and so on, we um, treated the Russians, as I said, as objects. We went ahead with NATO enlargement. There's a whole history of that, which we could go into later despite the warnings the Russians gave us. And under Yeltsin, they specifically warned us against doing that because of the effect it would have on the relationship. So that's, that's by way of being the background. Now, Putin himself. Putin, despite my original impression of him, is a highly intelligent, articulate, 
and competent man. That's why he was moved from Petersburg to Yeltsin's Kremlin, because they knew he could fix things. Um, he's loyal, he's passionate, he's vindictive, he's obsessional. Um, people talk a lot about the KGB connection. I think that is grossly exaggerated. I've met lots of people in the KGB, and none of them like Putin. Um, of course, he's got former colleagues, his judo teacher in Leningrad, and of course, former KGB colleagues, so he brings them in. I think it's exaggerated. He's a gambler, but up until recently, and I think this is important, he's always shown he knows where to stop. He did in Georgia in 2008. He did actually in 2014, he knew when to stop. And even before the war last year, I think it was becoming clear that his judgment, both for how he manages domestic political affairs and how he manages Russia's foreign policy, his judgment was coarsening. It's what happens to people as they, if they've been in office too long, they think they can walk on water. And we've seen a very good example in this country in the shape of Mrs. Thatcher, who also thought she could cause walk on water. Now, that said, I think his objectives are perfectly clear. First one is to preserve his power and his money, and more recently to manage his own departure from power. Uh, the other one is a determination, which I think is quite genuine, uh, which is to make Russia great again. Um, if you look at the history of his 20 years, 23 years now, nearly 22 years in office, he did start by, he, he said a lot of good things about how he wanted to cooperate with the West, how autocracy had failed and democracy was the answer. Uh, he did say those. He may or may not have believed them. But it changed quite quickly. Once he arrested Khodorkovsky, uh, the oligarch, in 2003, it started to nosedive. Um, then you had the growing obsession with Ukraine. I think it is an obsession. I think it's slightly, it's sort of unbalanced. I'm just not to say he's mad. But so you've got the, the election of 2005, which he intervened indirectly and failed to get his man, Yanukovych, elected. Then in 2013-14, Yanukovych had been, had been elected by a reasonably fair election, but he was ejected by the Ukrainian people in the Euromaidan. And then you had the annexation of Crimea and the incursion into Donetsk. Now, um, I think an important part of the background is the belief, not only of Putin, who's obsessed by it, but of very many Russians indeed, that Ukraine is a sort of accident, that Russia inherited its statehood a thousand years ago from Kiev, the Kievan state at the time, Russia inherited that, and the Ukrainians were occupied by Poles and Turks and all sorts of strange people, and only reconstituted a kind of state. Actually, Putin is right when he says they reconstituted thanks to Lenin and Stalin, who set up a puppet state in Kiev with all the attributes, fake attributes of government. Um, so a lot of Russians share that view, and I've heard them getting very upset about it. Um, I think that all that's as may be, um, but uh, as I said earlier, the war that Putin launched three weeks ago is entirely his initiative. He can't, nobody can say that he was forced into it by the actions of NATO or anybody else. That was a, a war that he wanted. 
It's a war which I think has already failed from his point of view, because one thing he succeeded in doing is making it absolutely clear that the Ukrainians really are an independent people who are prepared to fight, which they're doing extremely cunningly for their continued independence. Um, he has set back what we all hoped in 1991 was Russia's move to join the rest of the world as what Russians then called a normal country, set that back for an indefinite period. His favored ally, he's, he's seen that the West, this is a mistake dictators make, the West is not as decadent as Hitler and Mussolini and now he thought it was. And that's causing the Chinese to think again. So I think whatever the outcome of the war, and I don't know, and I'd be interested to hear a professional opinion. I don't know that we can know the answer to that for some time, but whatever, however the war ends, um, Putin has lost the game, in my view. Um, and then a final point, you know, people are responsible for their own governments. There's a sense in which Russians are responsible for Putin. But I think it's very important that particularly the sort of people who are listening today who have contact with Russia and Russians should not lose that contact. It's very important that we, that we do make a distinction, a legitimate distinction between what Putin and his gang have done and what ordinary Russians, however much misled they've been by Putin's propaganda, what they deserve. And I think we need to preserve that distinction. Thank you. Thank you, Sir Roderick. Um, very, very insightful comments there. So we now pass to our second speaker, uh, Dr. Burry from the Department of Politics. Good afternoon, <clears throat> and um, thanks to Sir Roderick there. That was fascinating as well, getting that insight. Um, we're going to do you know, the next 10 minutes or so, just speak about what were the likely military um, initial uh, objectives, um, the political objectives, because if we want to understand how this is going to end, we need to understand how, what was the plan, and why, why has it gone wrong, and then how may things play, plan out. I'm not a clairvoyant, but um, obviously fairly read into what's going on at the moment. And from an open source perspective. Um, so I think really looking at the military campaign and how it was set up uh, from the day one, um, the Russian military, the, certainly what I'm hearing reports from people who know people in the Russian army, that some of the uh, young officers weren't told they were going in uh, until the day before. Okay, so uh, these are on the in the eastern axis towards uh, Kharkiv. So you've got a situation where um, there, the plan itself for a major invasion and the support and preparations for that was non-existence for two reasons: OPSEC uh, and also the um, the a bit the, the the no mainly actually OPSEC to be honest with you that was the main the main reason. Um, so. The way the campaign was was organized was to try and do a coup de main on Kiev from the Belarusian side um, with some pincers, uh, basically what we call an attack along exterior lines, other pincers from the south, the southeast and the east. The coup de main was actually designed to drop um, paratroopers onto Antonov airport in, in Hostomel. Uh, who would secure it on, in what they thought would be, you know, very limited resistance, uh, secure it on day one, and then the 76 Guards Airborne Division was meant to be flown in, and, and apparently was actually in the air, but because the paratroopers, and that's about, you know, seven, 8,000 troops, and um, because the paratroopers couldn't actually secure the, the, the airport, 
Um, we were fighting Ukrainian Spetsnaz uh, who were told to get out there very quickly. Again, probably NATO intelligence tipped them off that this was all happening. Um, the whole plan unraveled, you know, and that plan was based on uh, FSB assessments that the Ukrainians would not fight, that the corruption in the Zelensky government, and if he, he wasn't particularly popular at the time uh, before the war, uh, and a, a general ambivalence towards uh, the government and or Russia uh, meant that the, they would face little resistance. That was the assessment given to Putin by the FSB department, two heads who are now under house arrest, I understand, um, uh, for getting it so wrong. Um, and so the plan on by day two, the, the main way of doing this, the coup de main, taking care of removing Zelensky, installing a puppet uh, regime under Yanukovych, uh, with most Ukrainians ideally just scratching their heads and not caring. This fitted in with Putin's worldview, um, and that did not happen. And so what we've seen then is, as I started off with that, that, that anecdote about the Russian junior officers not knowing whether they were going in or not, uh, and basically given a sort of half-baked plan to execute in a day, um, that explains a lot of the problems then that the, the Russian military have have uh, faced. There's a lot of other things though that you've seen in, in the analysis coming out um, that the Russian army in particular, uh, although their air force hasn't performed very well either. Um, there's a lot of elements that, that um, military analysts have noticed, you know, they're not performing as effectively as most of us would have thought they would have, including NATO, uh, I think. Um, and there's numerous reasons for this. I think the first one is um, it, it comes back to the lack, basically the lack of preparation and planning, that the desire to keep this quiet, um, the, the, the cloak and dagger, the need for OPSEC, the, the failure to actually make a decision. I think, you know, most people who I speak to, and Sir Roderick would have a good insight on this too, Putin's modus operandi is, to, is especially recently, certainly around the 2014-15 invasion of the Donbass, is to keep his cards very close to his chest, um, into a very small circle, which makes it difficult to penetrate Western intelligence to penetrate. Um, and then only at the last minute does he share the operational plans. Now that is okay in terms of trying to keep things uh, secure, but of course it gives the military less time to plan. So apparently the military did not really know what the, what the overall plan was if this coup demand didn't work. Um, so what, we, what else have we seen? We've seen logistics failures. Why is that? We're seeing logistics failures because the Ukrainians are allowing most of the combat formations of the Russians, which are fairly formidable, or can be, to bypass them and using their small teams um, generally to then attack the logistics convoys, which try to support them. Um, one of the real key areas here is in the east, in Sumy, um, and, and Kharkov, because around these areas, although the Russians haven't gone into the to the cities yet, um, they've bombarded them. Around these areas is where the Russians need to bring their logistics to reinforce uh, any move on Kiev. And so, what you're finding is small smaller bands are attacking these convoys. And the Russians are really, uh, at the moment, they've been heavily reliant on their trucks to bring forward these these supplies. The problem is they don't have many trucks. Um, they're easy targets uh, and they haven't got the what they really want to do, according to their doctrine, is get the railways working and establish railheads. They haven't got around to doing that yet. So this explains why the Ukrainians are able to attack the logistics, cause disruption and basically trade space for time, um, slow down the Russian advance 
And their strategy is basically wait as long as we can. We'll get more reservists being trained up and join our forces. More Western weapons come in. And in the longer run, you know, a matter of months, the, uh, the sanctions will really start to bite on the war machine. Conversely, every day the uh, war goes on for Russia, it's clearly not gone to the, the, the quick, uh, you know, clean victory that Putin had promised his oligarchs and, and the inner circle. Um, every day that that goes on is a day of greater risk for Putin himself and a day that I think does, does um, risk the, the defeat of the Russian army. Now, drawing assessments on, on where we are in the campaign is very difficult. What we see in the West from an open source perspective is uh, a lot of videos and analysis based, uh, you know, mainly videos and pictures of, of, you know, Russian tank columns being destroyed by anti-tank guided missiles or ambushes. Or even what I've seen is, you know, conscripts, uh, Russian conscripts running up a road um, being fired at by a machine gun, completely murderous. Uh, and, and, and indicates, you know, these guys have absolutely no training and how they think they're going to, you know, fight in a battle for Kiev is, is completely beyond me. Um, but it's very difficult to get an assessment of the scale. On the other hand, the Ukrainian armed forces are practicing brilliant operational security. We're not seeing any videos of their losses, barely. I've, see, I've seen a two or three, you know. Um, we don't know their positions. We wouldn't, you know. Um, and, and it's very difficult to then get an overall assessment of, of, of the scale of the losses for the Russians. Now, what we do know and what is starting to become corroborated, we've seen the Department of Defense in the United States say that they reckon, and this is again corroborated by EU, EU intelligence, they reckon the Russians have taken 6,000 dead. Um, a battlefield, a normal battlefield calculation is, is a one to three ratio of dead to wounded. So we're knocking on, you know, 18 to 20,000 uh, Russians basic losses, okay? We know that they've lost about 1,500 vehicles of all types. Again, quite a lot, not, not, not um, catastrophic for them given the amount they had, but still not insignificant. Uh, and the USDOD, this, this sort of number would chime with what the USDOD said last night, which is that they reckon that the, of the about 190,000 Russian troops committed to the invasion, um, uh, they've now committed all of those and they only have about 90% left. So they've taken about 10% casualties. So this, this would sort of corroborate how, how badly it's gone for them. We don't know really the scale of the losses apart on the Ukrainian side, apart from what Zelensky said of, of 1300 dead, uh, as of the last 48 hours. Um, the question really is in the longer run, can the Russians sustain those kind of losses? Probably not. Um, units generally formations become ineffective once they've taken a third of their their strength as, as losses um, so it would suggest that if they if it continued at that intensity and I don't think it is this is the funny thing I don't think it is I think this is one of the reasons they've paused um, but uh, is, is to sort of stop the losses uh, but I, I think if, if it was to be, if there was to be a move on Kiev, if there is to be ur heavy urban fighting where these serious losses are, are taken again, um, you would certainly experience would suggest that around the, once you've lost a third of your forces, so 
we would say within a month potentially at, at the current rate um, or a bit longer if it's slowed down, then, then they would start to become ineffective. Now, can they? The Russian army is huge. It's proven in the past that it can take a huge amount of casualties. Um, but the question is then about the morale of the troops. They're not fighting on Russian soil anymore. Um, these are conscripts, you know, that if, if, if they're bringing up their conscripts and they're bringing up their reserves and there's no evidence really to suggest that um, at, at the strategic level yet, um, then, uh, you, you know, th their ability, their will to fight in a very difficult battle space uh, is highly questionable. So I think then we come back to sort of what, what, what does the future look like? Um, Hopefully that the mood music with the negotiations is, is getting a little bit better. Um, they're moving from being suggestive to substantive, I understand. Um, and certainly the context of the bombardment of Kiev, these airstrikes and missiles um, would, would, you know, while the uh, negotiations are ongoing is exactly a Putin tactic, you know, um, and I think needs to be seen as a sort of that, that in that kind of communication. Um, he will know that he can't meet his political objectives um, he, depending on how much information his army is telling them, uh, you know, he should have a, have a decent enough understanding of the situation on the ground and how difficult it would be for him to continue with the, with the operation. His only real choice I, that I see is, is to move his artillery and his big guns um, closer to the cities. That means he has to push the Ukrainian army back, first of all, because hence, this is why we're seeing missile and airstrikes on, on Kiev and not... Um, and not artillery yet is because they're out of range um and and then bombard and you'd have to bombard for weeks it would be like aleppo or homs uh, and then you move your troops into the ruins now you know if you've got high morale defenders uh which you do in in kiev and the other cities the people will still fight in the ruins um and so it doesn't actually solve the problem but it's certainly it's plan b for the russian russians is always to just use their firepower um and so, yeah, that's kind of how I see it at the moment. It, 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 the big question is, is, is how long uh, the Russians could sustain those losses. I would have said, yeah, maybe six weeks if it continued at the same rate, maybe sooner. Um, the other big risk, and I should mention in this, is, is the best units of the Ukrainian army and their mass really was down on the contact line in Donbass. And so although the Russians' offences uh, from the south, which made actually a lot of progress at the start, has stalled somewhat in the last few days. Um, a big danger here is that they are, those forces in the southeast are encircled by a pincer from the south, and even indeed if some coming down from the north, um, from Kiev and, and from the east. Um, and there's a difficult decision to be made about when and if those Ukrainian forces should be um, withdrawn. Because if you imagine the loss of uh, the major part of their army, you know, by an encircling pincer, if they get cut off, could actually have quite a serious impact on the morale of those people defending Kiev and etc. So that's another thing just to just to watch for. But I'll leave it there and happy to answer anything else in the questions. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, so now we go to uh, Dr. Marin, uh, who will speak to us on a variety of topics. And I know that she wants to speak to us on the role of Belarus in particular. So over to you. Thank you very much, Charles. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm afraid my speech will be a bit more um, uh, worried about the possible evolution of this conflict. I happen to be living in Warsaw, where we are feeling the pressure much more heavily than you probably do 
um, in, in the UK, um, including, of course, uh, the, the migrant pressure and the fact that we are, um, I'm here in the library because I have five people uh, in my own home now. It's been uh, two weeks uh, that I'm, whom I'm hosting uh, for, otherwise uh, they would sleep outdoors. I remind that there are two million Ukrainian refugees already in uh, Poland. Um, I consider that uh, Putin's Russia is a revisionist state, which is headed by a revanchist uh, leader. Uh, this has a long history, which uh, has been reminded by, by the other panelists. Um, we can recall, uh, especially the, the Munich conference speech in 2007 of uh, Mr. Putin, who clarified how dissatisfied he is with the post-Cold War order and that he will seek to revert it. Um, we have seen how he reverted it already by creating or maintaining territorial disputes in ex-Soviet states. Uh, the fact that they had uh, contested borders. I'm thinking here, of course, about the situation in Moldova with Transnistria, but also in, in uh, Georgia, was a way to guarantee that these countries, Moldova, Georgia, and now Ukraine, after the annexation of Crimea, are not eligible to NATO accession because they have not solved their own border problems. Uh, this is a, a rule within NATO for uh, taking in new members. Um, but uh, obviously, Mr. Putin has been rejecting all the principles that this order rests on and which, in our view, should be rules-based. Um, this conflict goes very well beyond the question of, of Ukraine and the issue at stake from Putin's viewpoint is uh, this uh, claims that he has um, made throughout uh, uh, the past years and, and most specifically in November, December uh, for security guarantees, uh, wanting basically NATO outside of Central Europe um, and Ukraine out of NATO. Uh, the claim that we hear uh, still today on, on um, Russian TV, for example, that uh, NATO should go back to its 1997 borders, let me remind you, means that um, uh, they consider that uh, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, the Baltic states, Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Slovenia, Albania, Croatia, Montenegro, and North Macedonia should leave NATO. So, uh, of course, this is absolutely unacceptable. And uh, Mr. Um, uh, Stoltenberg has uh, clearly indicated uh, before before Christmas that it's only Ukraine and 13 NATO allies that can decide when Ukraine is ready to join NATO, refusing Russia to have any kind of veto or right to establish a sphere of influence to try to control uh, the neighbors, which are neighbors of uh, both Ukraine, uh, both Russia and um, and uh, Europe, for that matter. Um, what I hear in um, in the media or, or analysts' coverage of uh, the events of the past three weeks is a tendency to forget that the war has actually been going on since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea and the uh, launching of, a, of, of an armed conflict also in uh, eastern Ukraine, in Donbas. Uh, what we can ask ourselves is why this acceleration has occurred right now. Um, there are several explanations in my view. First, um, Putin has probably thought that it was the time to seize the opportunity. He was seeing Biden as uh, weak. Remember the conditions uh, of uh, Biden's inauguration, uh, um, feeling also that uh, with this pivot to Asia, uh, the US would be uh, less interested in Europe and maybe even less willing to, um, to uh, protect it within NATO. 
Um, and of course, uh, a turning point was uh, the deplorable conditions and impact of the US retreat from Afghanistan in the summer 2021. That sent a very strong signal to, uh, to, to Putin that, well, uh, if the US was on a retreat, then um, uh, Russia could expand. Um, he could also perceive the North Atlantic Alliance as uh, divided. I recall the uh, statements, for example, of Mr. Macron saying that um, the NATO was in a state of uh, brain death, uh, which was very offending, of course, for uh, those countries, for example, in Poland, that count very much on, uh, on NATO solidarity and, and the um, <clears throat> strength of Article 5 commitments. Um, Putin has long been playing on internal European divisions as well, um, interfering in our, our uh, in elections uh, in France, in um, in um, the Netherlands, uh, probably in the Brexit vote as well, and most recently. Uh, with uh, the, the the migrants crisis, and I'm referring here to uh, the uh, the, the um, engineered crisis uh, organized by Mr. Lukashenko at the Belarusian Polish and Belarusian Lithuanian borders. So, with all this, it seemed to him in 2021 that the moment had come um, to, uh, to 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 well, basically um, bang on the table and say, well, now we want to be listened to. He also used the fact that uh, the new German government was perceived as an experience um, and uh, that this coalition might actually have difficulty uh, be uh, uh, like strong uh, against uh, on, on, uh, if on Russian encroachments. Um, but one explanation, which I think is very convincing, and I hold it from Mark Galeotti, is that Putin has for many years been misinformed by the people from his close circle. And as you know, he, he trusts uh, uh, less and less people in this circle. And uh, these people are from intelligence. It's not the military. And they have got used to giving him the information that he wishes to hear, uh, like any Tsar. Uh, so for example, among the information that um, he has been really uh, fueled over the past years is about how popular uh, Russia would be in, in Donbass and about this idea that um, that indeed Russia in invading Ukraine, for example, would be welcomed as uh, a savior. And um, I think he was really misled into believing that uh, Zelensky is a Nazi, that Russian speakers are victims of genocide, and that this would legitimize the defensive operation. I can't imagine that he has ordered such a strong propaganda machine to, um, to um, disseminate these um, uh, uh, lies if he was, would not himself believe in them. Um, and this is where his biggest mistake come from, because he imagined that would be a blitzkrieg with a fast victory, um, uh, thanks to the support of the uh, liberated population. As we have seen, this has absolutely not uh, been the case. Um, now, uh, just a couple of more minutes to uh, address the uh, million dollar question of what now? How do we react? What do we do beyond sanctions? Of course, it's important for the West to show unity. Um, I remember in the lead up to the invasion, I mean, we, ha we have been having these conversations uh, among experts for many months now, and we could hear from some uh, government officials in the EU, for example, uh, that some were concerned about the fact that Putin's distraction tactic was actually pulling away their resources. They were wary that provoking Putin risked escalating the conflict into a military one. They argued that giving evacuation orders um, to their uh, uh, citizens in Ukraine was actually sending the wrong signal. 
etc. But in fact, uh, it was wise to recommend that people leave uh, before the, the conflict uh, erupted. Um, so the, the result of this first phase of mounting tensions and, and impossible negotiations because Putin's demands were simply not acceptable is that we kept trusting in diplomacy, forgetting that what Putin does, in fact, is not diplomacy, it's diktaplomacy. It's the diplomacy of a dictatorial regime, uh, which uh, seeks uh, always to use uh, sharp power, hybrid warfare, and, uh, and, and outright lies uh, to, to justify the unjustifiable. So as a result of these, um, this wariness of like this fear of escalating uh, uh, the, the crisis, uh, our governments have in fact been sleeping, sleepwalking into it. <coughs> Kept on calling for dialogue, uh, as Mr. Macron did, or thinking that deterrence was enough, but they were wrong. Uh, whereas the military establishment and part of society was generally worried and rightly so. Now, where we stand now, there is no more low risk route. So there is no point talking about the risk of an inadvertent escalation. <coughs> Why that? Because um, unfortunately, I'm quite convinced that um, Mr. Uh, Putin and his supporters want that escalation. For uh, several weeks already on social media, I've been noticing that the uh, hashtag that was used uh, by the supporters, now they use this Z sign, but uh, the hashtag was uh, World War III. Uh, so if we uh, look at this from that perspective, I think we should uh, remember that in such a situation, there can be no winner. We will all lose. We will all have to suffer a lot from uh, whatever happens next. And it's absolutely important that our societies, that our governments inform our societies about the fact that they will suffer too. Um, the fact that there will be no winner doesn't mean that Mr. Putin should not be defeated. And I think this is absolutely important now, knowing that he is apparently able to provoke an Armageddon. Um, so in conclusion, um, what we have to do, of course, stick with our principles and values and show solidarity with the victims of the war. I'm talking about the refugees, not only from Ukraine, but also from Russia and Belarus. They will be coming more and more of them, those who are actually against this war and uh, are subject to repression for that reason. We have to show unity, reactivity and comprehensiveness in our sanctions policy and the the feedback we get is that actually sanctions do bite, and this is a strong warning, not only for Russia, but for China too. Uh, we have to beef up our response to the disinformation war. Uh, banning Russian propaganda channels in Europe was a good step, but we should reflect now on how to get the counter-narrative being heard in Russia and among its allies, because of course, uh, Russia has been cutting the communication uh, um, between our two continents, so to say, and we are not um, actually uh, safe against the possibility that it uh, physically cuts the cables, uh, for example, under uh, the, the undersea cables that guarantees communication even between Europe and the United States. Um, so uh, this information effort that we have to make towards the Russian population is that this is indeed a war where Russians, that Russians started and that they are killing their Ukrainian brothers. This is something that from what I gather, many Russians are just simply not ready to believe even when they are shown the proofs. Um, we should stress that Ukraine has not and never intended to genocide anyone in the Donbass. And we also have to debunk one underlying lie 
um, in the uh, discourse used, uh, the justification discourse of Mr. Putin, that Gorbachev would have been given by anyone in the 1990s a promise that NATO would not expand, because this is simply not the case. And Mr. Gorbachev himself has reminded this uh, very recently. Uh, lastly, I think we should prepare for the worst and be beef up our defense. Uh, this is the conclusions that uh, the president of my country, Mr. Macron, um, gave, shared after his last talk with Mr. Putin, uh, because Putin will probably not stop at Ukraine. And if it's very important to keep on listening to what is being said uh, by pro-Putinists in the country, in Russia, I'm thinking about Solovyov, for example, who yesterday uh, openly said that uh, indeed they are after other countries, not they will not stop at Ukraine. And as I said, being in Poland, we are very concerned about the risk of a provocation meant to drag Poland and therefore NATO into a World War III. Um, the shelling of the Yavoriv training center, which is 25 kilometers away from the Polish border on Sunday, gave us the chills. But I would be even more concerned if I was in a non-NATO country such as Finland or Moldova. Um, coming uh, in conclusion, uh, mentioning this uh, the situation uh, in um, with Belarus, this is of course a, a, an issue of concern for us in Poland here because uh, there has been a buildup of military uh, presence, Russian and Belarusian, at the borders of um, of Belarus with Ukraine, but also with Poland, under the disguise of uh, the so-called Allied Resolve um, snap exercises, um, in which two. Uh, 80,000 soldiers were involved, including units from the Far East that have been moved over 10,000 kilometers to come and exercise on Belarusian soil. The last time these units were on European soil was during World War III. Um, so in that, uh, for, for uh, this, this presence is of course extremely worrying. Uh, it's probably not meant only to serve uh, to uh, attack Ukraine and Belarus could play a pivotal role uh, if uh, the the um, the conflict would was to escalate. It is already now an enabler, definitely, because a lot of um, missiles that be, that are being shot on Ukraine uh, fly off from Belarusian soil. But um, the the Belarus is not a co-belligerent. It's not a co-aggressor, and Ukraine is very clear about it and trying to prevent. Uh, uh, um, uh, Belarus from entering that war. But Lukashenko himself is on a very short leash uh, and he might be forced into entering this war. And that's probably the, the, the uh, rationale behind the shelling of Belarusian territory from Ukraine by Russian forces on 11th of March, uh, obviously as a provocation to try and drag uh, Belarus in the war as well. For now, Belarus is a hostage uh, of Mr. Putin but it might well be the first victims when we think about which country will fall, even before Ukraine. I'm afraid that um, Belarus, in Putin's view, does not deserve to exist as an independent state. And we might well wake up one morning soon with uh, that neighboring country not existing anymore, having been absorbed overnight into the, the, the Russian Federation. Uh, allowing then Russia to put its troops even nearer to uh, to Europe and NATO uh, and potentially using them to bridge the gap with uh, Kaliningrad, which probably is also in uh, his intentions. I'll stop here and uh, welcome questions. Thank you.
Thank you. Uh, I think we've gotten some very good insights uh, from our three speakers so far. Um, please use the Q&A function to ask questions uh, of our speakers here uh, and who you, who you would like to answer the question unless you want everyone to give a comment on it. Um, I'll just use uh, chair's prerogative while the questions are coming in to kick things off. And I think this is a question for Sir Roderick. You mentioned the idea of a Weimar Republic situation. Um, and Johns Hopkins University had David Sater, uh, journalist and uh, adjunct professor uh, at the university there speaking of this. And he said the problem of Weimar Russia and that the trauma of 1991 and the absence of the solace of a powerful state has resulted in a Russia that, uh, and, and a Putin's inner circle that has a gangster mentality combined with the old communist disregard for human right, life, resulting in an a obsession with the need to hold power uh, at any cost. Um, and would you feel that that is a, a fair assessment coming from obviously an American author and an American viewpoint of what is happening? And Richard Haas at the Council of Foreign Relations has now said that we need to prepare for a war of, of perseverance with no sign of peace in sight. Um, is that a, a, a view which you would concur with or do you think that things are, are not as bleak as that? Well, I'm not sure I would concur with it, and I'm not sure that Weimar is relevant to the proposition anyway. I mean, the Weimar analogy was there, it's happened in a sense, it's now past. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things I keep on reminding people is who lost the Cold War and why? You know, we had, I, I, I do remember Poland, I went to Poland three years after the Poles had dejected the Russians in 1959, everybody's forgotten that, including most Poles. I mean, the Russians failed time and time again to get the Cold War. The Cold War went on for 40 years. I hope this one doesn't go on as long as that. But I, I think one can exaggerate Putin's ability to achieve his ambitions, whatever he thinks his ambitions are. Um, that was one point I think is relevant. I also, I'd like if I may to talk about the unfolding of the war, it can unfold in all sorts of ways. But one of the things the Russians can do, which has been touched on, is they can do another Grozny. They can pound Kiev into the dust. In so doing, they would be destroying their own history because they all say Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities. First point. Secondly, uh, we have a, a precedent in the Winter War, the Finns. The Finns really thrashed the Russians in the winter of 1939, 1940. The Russians then, of course, won the war, but they've retained a respect for Finland ever since. And I've talked to Finnish military about that. They couldn't win a war against Russia, but they do think the Russians would think twice about invading again. And that's where I think we want to end up with uh, Ukraine. I think it's perfectly possible. I think that um, we've heard uh, that the Russians are running out of military options the thing hasn't worked the way it was supposed to work. It says a lot about modern Russia. So I, 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 I think that, um, of course, we've changed our attitude completely over the past few weeks to what needs to be done. I still wonder about the willingness of the average person in all countries to face up to a genuine possibility of the Third World War 
unless they really know what they're letting themselves in for. The Third World War would be uh, what we know what it'd be like or could be like. And I don't, I'd be surprised if there was a risk in France, in this country or in America or in Russia to go that far. Of course, we could stumble into it. Putin might push his luck to the point where he accidentally falls into it. I'd be very surprised if he was intending it because he wouldn't have any Russia left if he did. So he wouldn't have made Russia great again. He'd have turned it into a heap of rubble, which is not irrational. He may not be rational, but that's not a rational calculation. Very good. Um, and our, one of our first questions is about the position of the, the Baltic nations. And do you think that uh, the Ukrainian invasion is the first of many invasions to happen into the future involving the Baltics, potentially Finland, and what the probability of, of such an event would be? That's to all the panel. I can address that one if you want. <clears throat> yes, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I think it's important to distinguish between countries which are already members of NATO and those that are not. So this indeed puts uh, uh, Finland to a lesser extent, Sweden and uh, Moldova, but also Georgia, uh, in a specific uh, situation of, of particular vulnerability. Uh, when it comes to the uh, Baltic states or Poland, uh, they are already members of NATO. So we assume that uh, should there be any, as Mr. Stoltenberg again said, uh, should there be any Russian foot on, uh, on those lands, uh, it would be immediately, um, it would provocate an ent entrance of uh, NATO as a whole in solidarity with its members uh, in this uh, conflict with the risk, as Mr. Putin has already warned, that if there is any kind of interference from NATO in his, quote, uh, special operation, uh, we should face uh, the consequences. And he's the one who has been using very clearly this, uh, this uh, nuclear uh, blackmail and, and, and threats. Um, I agree with, um, with Sir uh, uh, Braithwaite that uh, an Armageddon doesn't seem like rational because uh, it would indeed destroy Russia automatically as well. Um, but first of all, we can have doubts about the rationality of Mr. Putin at this point, at this specific uh, stage. Uh, that's for one. And um, second, uh, the, uh, the uh, nuclear uh, weapons can be used also just for, uh, for tactical strikes uh, on Ukraine, for example, on neighboring countries, uh, as I said, which are non-NATO members. Uh, but we should rem remember that from a Russian perspective, uh, what we call hybrid warfare is actually not separate from uh, the actual hard power mobilization into, into a war. And uh, all this sharp power or, or soft power um, or hybrid power uh, um, uh, tactics that we have seen mobilized over the past months, they are actually complementary to what is going on now, which is real armed conflict. Therefore, the, um, the, the, the type of um, escalation or harm that Mr. Putin can do below the uh, threshold of that would uh, uh, trigger the activation of Article 5 of NATO uh, is actually immense. Uh, I was mentioning the, um, the, the, the cutting of, of the um, under ocean uh, uh, internet connections, I mean, uh, these cables, things, uh, there is a lot that can be done also when it comes to uh, gas, uh, of course, 
uh, is the, the winter season, the heating season is not over in our in our part of Europe, so it could harm. Um, but but also uh, in general uh, cyber attacks, and we can very well imagine that. And and Finland has already experienced it. Apparently, the GPS is not working uh, since yesterday in Finland, for example. Um, so the the uh, you can imagine how governments could react to uh, a crisis situation if at the same time they are targeted by cyber attacks, multiple cyber attacks that paralyze their institutions, their decision-making uh, uh, um, processes, and uh, well, also spread panic among the, among the population. So I think we should not exclude this kind of non-conventional evolution of the Russian aggression and indeed against us as well. Would you like to respond on that, Patrick, possibly? I think, yes, <clears throat> on the idea, I, I, coming and looking at it from a military perspective, you know, I would be very um, cautious thinking that Putin is going to invade Finland after the debacle he's got himself involved in here. I would think, you know, having fought in Afghanistan um, and having seen NATO, yes, it had to learn on the, on the hoof, but seeing some of the assets that it brings, if in the Baltic states, if there was an invasion there, the Russian forces, as we've seen, would be chewed up, spat out and booed off stage in short order, um, which actually raises the stakes then in, 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 more towards a nuclear confrontation. And not that I think that's going to happen anyway, but I really think the lesson that Putin has got here is that I've been sold a pup here. My military told me I spent billions reforming them over the last eight years or 12 years even. Uh, and, and guess what? They're useless. You know, my elite units are fairly useless. Uh, you know, I've seen some of the footage. Um, the, they're not able to maintain even my most expensive pieces of air defense. Uh, why? Because of corruption. Um, you know, the stories of Syrian vets, officers and, and soldiers coming back from the fighting in Syria and then being held to ransom and having the stuff robbed off their bases by the Russian mafia, because the Russian mafia are closer to the state apparatus uh, than the military. They're the lower, the military are low down the pecking order. All this stuff is coming out now. So for me, you know, um, and as long as this goes on, the last thing he's going to be doing is putting in any forces. Now you could say, yeah, maybe against Finland, he'd try that. But you think of all the assets that NATO would be sending Finland's way. He's just be the rerun of the same thing. For me, this, he's got his face punched in here and, um, and, and he'd be doing well to walk away. So returning to that issue of walking away, uh, and there's, there's much in the New York Times today discussing the need to build an off-ramp for Vladimir Putin and facilitating that through either the Chinese or possibly this delegation of Poland, Czech Republic and, and Slovenia that has gone to Kiev uh, today. Um, what are your thoughts on how the West is able to develop this off-ramp and bring about uh, some sort of ceasefire or treaty negotiation? <clears throat> Can I? You can jump in there, yes. I, I'd like to, because there's a point that I've been making that I'd like to make in this context too. I uh, find it rather distasteful uh, the way so many Western commentators and spokesmen jump in with ideas about how we should set up the negotiations uh, with the Russians in order to get the Ukrainians out of a mess. The 
or to get Putin out of a mess, even worse. I think the only people who should have a view on when it's appropriate to start negotiations and conduct them are the Ukrainians. They, and they are actually playing a rather clever hand at the moment, I think. They've shown themselves perfectly willing to talk but perfectly clear on what the conditions for talking have to be. It's for them to say, it's not for us to say, we should talk to the Russians about this, that, and the other, and give Putin an off-ramp. Um, I think a different question is, how can we encourage the departure of Putin willy-nilly? And here, I'd, I'd like to comment on this question of hybrid warfare. It happens that we are very good at cyber warfare in the West. It happens, it turns out the Ukrainians are very good at information warfare also. It turns out that all the Russians could do is spread a lot of obvious lies. Now, I don't know how many people that impresses, but it's not very convincing. Whereas what we do and are doing and what the Ukrainians can do seems to be, is effective. There are ways of getting through to the Russians. Multiple hackers, 300,000 people in Ukraine, or whatever the figure is, probably wrong, but still a lot of people being recruited to hack into the Russians and get the message across to ordinary Russians by flooding email addresses. We can do all that. I, I really don't see why we should be less effective than the Russians at doing that. And I say again, we won the Cold War because we were better at it than the Russians. Why should that have changed? Okay, very uh, that, 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 That's a very useful way of, of engaging in the, in the next question, which is opening the lens out a bit wider and talking about what this does with respect to the relationship of the West with China. Um, and will China learn lessons from Putin's uh, invasion? Um, and will this rechange the calculus that the Chinese uh, had after uh, the, the exit of the US and uh, from Afghanistan? So whoever wants to jump in I don't on mind that. Having to go with that one. I, I yep. think, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a sinologist um, here at all, but I think, you know, China would like to sit on the fence uh, with this as much as it can and, and, and throw a, a bone to Putin as well. If you look at the, the sun, uh, sorry, the Financial Times scoop last night about uh, the cables, the, the leak, the US basically leaking that Russia had asked for, um, you know, surface air missile launchers, armored personnel carriers, uh, precision precision guided munitions and also rations um you know from china now and, and the china was was according to the us you know uh, looking at these in, in in detail um whether they actually send them weapons i don't know it, it is indicative of just how badly it's gone the russians should have thousands of of surface air missiles uh, and thousands tens of thousands of armored vehicles so you know, that's an interesting one there. But maybe the non-lethal aid, we've seen Russian soldiers scrounging for, for rations off the Ukrainians and the Belarusians before. So maybe the non-lethal aid in terms of rations would would be something that um, China could support Russia with. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, I think one of the big lessons of the strategic uh, lesson here is that, look, the West may have been a bit asleep. Um, it was, uh, you know, Putin was pushing the bayonet in against flesh rather than bone, but I think he's found bone. And, and I think that uh, that's a realization of a, of a giant being a, a, awakened um, throwing its economic might at the, at the problem would certainly reverberate in, uh, in Beijing. So um, that's, yeah, that's, what, that's what, sort of where I see it. I don't know what the other contributors do. Marin, you seem to, to want to jump in there as well. 
Um, yeah, well, we've heard, I mean, uh, in France, for example, from the very beginning of the uh, of the invasion, uh, that, that China could play a, a role, um, supposedly that uh, Xi Jinping could discuss with uh, with Putin and threaten him or, or, or make him go back to reason, that's for one. And the second, that uh, basically we the West was in such a difficult situation now that we would have to uh, ask the Chinese for help. And uh, the, the conclusion that I heard uh, on, 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 in these debates is that this would be the end of NATO, for sure. If we rely on China to stop Mr. Putin from exterminating Ukrainians, there will be no more reason for the Ukrainians to even consider joining NATO in the future. And there will be no raison d'être for uh, NATO if we basically, um, um, how to say it, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, this, the, I missed the word in English. Um, if, if we uh, ask the Chinese to, to take care of European security. So that would be problematic, definitely. So, Roderick, you've had a point to break. Well, I, I have a general point about Russia and China and perhaps particular points. My general point about Russia and China, I've been saying for a long time, is that we exaggerate the importance of that relationship, or rather, we exaggerate the likelihood that that will become a really uh, serious uh, factor in world affairs. The Russians need the Chinese. The Chinese can take the Russians or leave them alone. They have a common interest in opposing decadent Western, all that stuff. But actually, China's interests are totally different apart from that, from Russia's interests. Uh, China, China is the other superpower these days. The Russian aspiration to revert to its old position is doomed anyway. Um, I think the Chinese at the moment are probably, I'm, I'm not a Sinologist, but I talked about a Sinologist. I think they're probably making quite sensible and not very difficult to understand calculations about where their advantage lies. Their advantage in present circumstances, as far as I can see, does not lie in them committing themselves very far to Russia. They have somehow to live with the, whatever the phrase was they invented a few weeks ago about the indissoluble relationship, but that's rhetoric. The Chinese will do what they think is best for China, in my view, and having a punch up with their biggest clients, their biggest customers, it's not a very sensible thing to do. It's difficult for us too, because unlike Russia, the Chinese make things that we actually want to buy. The Russians still haven't learned to do that. We don't want to buy anything from Russia except oil and gas. Um, and oil and gas is no use. It's no use the Russians switching it off because they need the money that they get from selling it. So it's more complicated than it looks. That's the general proposition. We exaggerate the possibilities of the Chinese-Russian relationship, I think. I think in present circumstances, I don't think there's any question of us asking the Chinese to solve the problem for us. I think that's not what we're doing. Uh, we are setting out and, and showing that we're trying to solve the problem ourselves, so far being fairly effective. Um, having the Chinese on our side rather than against us is an obvious objective. And I think talking to that, and the Americans seem to be being quite tough with the Chinese, uh, talking about how the Chinese at least shouldn't get in our way is a perfectly sensible thing to do. It doesn't mean that we need the Chinese to solve the problem because I don't think the Chinese are going to make any more problems for us and they can't solve the problem that's between us and the Russians. Returning to that question of, of um, us solving the problems in Ukraine, um, there's a lot of questions presented on the, um, the relative stability of the us. 
what would happen if uh, there is a change in the House of Representatives in the midterm elections? Um, it's clear the U.S. Republican Party is slightly more um, Russian friendly than the Democratic Party. And if there was a change in the incumbent in the White House, and also many questions about where the European Union goes as an entity in this. Um, Macron was mentioned many times in his, in his derogatory comments about NATO, uh, but where the, the, his objective of strategic autonomy for Europe uh, will be going, and uh, where the position of the UK now outside of the EU, but still within NATO, uh, and still with significant military capabilities will be uh, in, this, in this new future. So whoever wants to take that first, please go ahead. Dr. Marin, there are several questions in your in your questions. So it's not easy to to um, <clears throat> to address. Um, I think what the West has uh, shown, and that's a good thing over the past weeks, is extraordinary unity um, and uh, common uh, com common purpose, common understanding of the situation, common purpose. I mean, uh, especially well from from an EU centered viewpoint the uh, 180 degrees change in the uh, German approach, you know, like uh, basically abandoning its Ostpolitik uh, for a much uh, uh, stronger stance on, on Russia is extremely important. And uh, this shows again that uh, we are able to uh, to show our muscles as well. And this is the only thing, this is the only language that Mr. Putin and, uh, accepts and understands, you know, that's, uh, sorry if I sound a bit hawkish here, but uh, unfortunately with, with him, we have to uh, speak from a position of, uh, of force. And coming back to the issue of, of China, if you allow me, <clears throat> Uh, I think China is, is very much looking at what is happening, as, as uh, uh, Patrick said, uh, sitting on the fence, that, that it's not in their mentality and their foreign policy to get involved in, in, in any way. But uh, we have seen that abstention in the, uh, in the UN um, Human Rights Council was, uh, was uh, very surprising. Uh, of course, we have to see this evolving into also some kind of um, less of an alignment, including at the Security Council. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, for sure, China will want to, uh, if, if, if Putin manages to get what he wants, to get, for example, if only if, if it's just closing the, um, the uh, occupying the whole of the uh, of the uh, maritime part of, of of Ukraine, preventing Ukraine from having access to the Black Sea. If if he stops at this and establishes this republics, uh, um, phantom uh, not phantom but, um, puppet republics, on on the DNR LNR model uh, in these regions. We can imagine that uh, China will uh, think of that it, it also has an, an open road to uh, to also do the same thing for, with Taiwan, for example. Um, on the other hand, what uh, um, I've been hearing uh, for, for, for some time is that um, China could also use that opportunity, uh, this, this uh, uh, disorder that we have now, this new world disorder that we have, uh, to uh, officially um, appropriate the uh, already sinicized uh, territories of the Russian Far East, and uh, that would be uh, that would that would be the best way actually to terminate the um, the uh, aggression, the Russian aggression of Ukraine. Because as one of the uh, person in the chat was asking, how many percentage of the Russian forces are now deployed in Ukraine? From what I know, it's near to 90, 95 percent, Patrick. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but it's extremely important. There are no more forces in the uh, station in the East. So Russia is extremely vulnerable and having this potentially this Asian front opened would be probably the, the best way to accelerate the end of this war, meaning also by dismantling Russia in, in that sense, because um, there is no way I can't imagine of a, a safe world in the future after this conflict, if Russia remains um, as, as it is now, and, and uh, if Mr. Putin, for example, rests uh, in, in office. Thanks for that, Anne. No, I, I would say it's what they've committed is 100% of their invasion force, not the, not the Russian army. So Russian army, depending on the conscripts and, and Rosgardia units, but you know, somewhere between 600,000 and a million strong, depending on, on, on how you want to count it. And Sir Roderick, do you have a response? Um, well, I've lost track of the question. Where, what was the question? <laughs> well, the, the, the question was about um, the solidarity of the West and yeah. if yeah. the US wavers yeah. due to change. I, 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 I've reminded me. Well, yeah. I think the first thing is that anybody who thinks they know what the future holds needs their head examining. <laughs> and we, don't know, we don't know who's going to win the next American election, presidential election. We don't know who's going to win the next Russian presidential election. And those are two both important factors. Um, I think Biden has turned out to be a much better president than he was billed to be. I think his handling of the crisis so far, this crisis has been rather well conducted. Um, if Trump came in again, um, I resign really. I'm, I'm not prepared to say what would happen there. I think that, I think that uh, the German 180 degrees turn is very important. I think it is clear that um, the Europeans do need to organize their defenses better than they have done, spend more money on it. And I think Putin's made a great contribution to them doing that. I think that uh, that is likely to continue for the, for the next few years. I think, it, I think it's meaningful this time around, the talk of increasing budgets. I think it means something in a way it hasn't done in the past. Um, I think it's, clear to Europeans that whether they or not they dislike America and the way America throws its weight around, that's not particularly relevant anymore because they need America. By the same token, and it was true during the Cold War, in a very real way, America needs Europe. America's position in the world would begin to dissolve if Europe went was taken over by Russia, which isn't going to happen. But that was the issue in the Cold War. The Russians were the Americans were never going to pull their troops back from NATO, and I think that that consideration will continue to be, be in their minds because Europe is an absolutely major uh, American interest. For all the talk of pivoting to the Far East, that's not going to go away. That's where their investments are. That's where their people are, and so on. So I think that. If one's going to talk about the future, I think that the chances of Europe and America beefing up their defences are reasonably high. I think that Macron has a point, although he carries it too far, and that the Europeans need to organise themselves for defence better than they did. And as far as Britain's concerned, I mean, whatever anybody thinks, whether they happen to live on the continent of Europe or in Bootle in this country, the British are condemned to be part of Europe, whether they like it or not. The EU doesn't exhaust the idea of Europe. Europe is what it is, and uh, we're part of it. And uh, what happens on the European continent is of the most direct and vital interest of the British. So the British will pay a part, and the various uh, irritations that Brexit has caused will 
that we will find, we and the continental Europeans will find ways around those. So I think one can overplay that aspect too. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm sorry to say that we've run out of time, uh, which has gone very quickly. Uh, there are many other questions which I would have hoped to have had an opportunity to answer. Uh, we will collect them all um, and, uh, and, and try to process them the best we can. Uh, it just falls to me to thank our, our three uh, brilliant and, um, and erudite speakers, uh, Sir Roderick, uh, Dr. Marin, and Dr. Burry, uh, for taking the time this afternoon to contribute to this discussion. Uh, please follow us at uh, the IPR at the University of Bath and Future. We have events like this on a regular basis, and we will be having blogs and policy papers following up on this topic and many other topics in public policy in the UK and Europe over the next uh, few weeks and months. And uh, once again, thank you to our speakers. Have a great afternoon for those of you that are in this time zone and a, a great day for the rest of you wherever you are. Uh, thank you very much. Bye-bye.